Go ahead and grab your Bibles. Flip with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 5. We are working through this series, Ecclesiastical Schematics, learning the doctrine of the church and uh, walking through the various elements and the things that the church does, how the church functions, and what the church, how it's structured, and so on and so forth. Um, but today we're going to talk about church music uh, and a theolo- developing a theology and a philosophy of church music. So Second Chronicles 5, let's stand for the reading of God's Word. Second Chronicles chapter 5, picking up in verse 11. These are the words of God. Now it happened that when the priests came out of the holy place, for all the priests who were present had sanctified themselves without regard to divisions, and all the Levitical singers, Asaph, Heman, Jeduthun, and their sons and relatives, clothed in fine linen with cymbals, harps, and lyres, standing east of the altar, and with them 120 priests blowing trumpets in unison, when the trumpeters and the singers were to make themselves heard with one voice to praise and to give thanks to Yahweh, and when they lifted up their voice, accompanied by trumpets and cymbals and instruments of music, and when they praised Yahweh, saying, He indeed is good, for his loving kindness endures forever. Then the house, the house of Yahweh, was filled with a cloud, so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of Yahweh filled the house of God. And Colossians 3.16 says this, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with gratefulness in your hearts to God. Let's pray. Our Father and gracious God, guide us, we ask, by your word and Holy Spirit, that in your light we may see light, and in your truth find freedom, and in your will discover peace through Christ our Lord. And amen. You can be seated. For the past several decades, the topic of church music has been nothing short of an inconstant cacophony of strife and infighting. Pun absolutely intended there. The question of what is permissible, what music is permissible in the gathering of God's people tends to fall somewhere on the scale between exclusive psalmody, so only singing psalms, no instrumentations, that's one end of the spectrum, and then on the other end of the spectrum is do whatever makes you feel goodism. I remember, I have this story to share, and uh, you'll remember this, Mary. I remember attending a church in Pennsylvania many, many years ago, and one of the songs that they chose to sing was U2's I Still Haven't Found What I'm Looking For. And I think the irony was lost on them, for they definitely haven't found what they were looking for. And I think it's because they all left their Bibles at home. Which, incidentally, I noticed that I was among the minority of people who showed up with a printed copy of scriptures in in the hand. I will never forget that, that day, singing U2 in church. When considering the issue of church music, and church music obviously music as it pertains to the church, many questions arise. What exactly are we supposed to do with music? What are we supposed to do? Has God showed us in his word what we're allowed to do 
with music, has he commanded us to do anything specific either? Because if God commands something, we want to know what it is so that we can obey God first and foremost. Even further, does God even care about music in the church? Uh, what parameters are we supposed to consider with this topic? And what I'd like to do this morning is, is explain to you why church music matters and why we should care deeply about it. Many evangelicals today do not believe that the Bible regulates it, much less that God cares to specify anything as a result. Part of the problem is that biblical preaching, and that'll be a topic we'll cover next Sunday, Lord willing, biblical preaching has taken, uh, taken a back seat, and churches spend most of their time singing long Hillsong or Bethel ballads, essentially lulling God's people to sleep with emotional manipulation. And by the way, that's a tactic that came out of the revivalism. That's it's a sort of a utilitarian revivalist work of, of Charles Finney. Charles Finney denied certain key doctrines of the faith and should be written off as a false teacher. So rather than seeking what God's word says on the issue, most Christians today believe that preferences take priority over what God has said. And as a result, churches typically give way to the zeitgeist, the spirit of the age, in order to bring people in the doors. Um, hence singing U2 songs, or there was a church many years ago, a large mega church. they did an ACDC song for Easter, Highway to Hell. So true, true, true story. That was, uh, I forget the name of the church, <laughs> but they did that song on Easter because we're a cool church, we're going to do ACDC, get everybody in and pack it out and and they played that song. Now, because the church today is so largely malnourished, it should be no surprise that vainly repetitious choruses with emotionally charged pep talks have stolen the show and captured the attention of pietistic Christians. And in fact, there is a large movement in the megachurch world right now where the sermon is accompanied by piano or music in the background to hope hopefully pep you up and charge you up because God's word preached isn't sufficient. So we got we to gotta do more to get you fired up and inspired. So they'll put music behind the very short 15-minute pep talk, so-called sermon. So rather than spending our time focusing our emotions and attention on the glory of the thrice holy triune God, music today is meant to soothe our beleaguered consciences so that people leaving feel good about themselves. It's a ploy, it's a tactic to grow the brand, and I do believe that God hates it. So what do we do instead? Well, we go to the word first and foremost. Let's look at 2 Chronicles 5 here. Now the Levites were in charge of the priestly duties and they would assist the high priest with their temple responsibilities. And one of their responsibilities we see here is providing musical accompaniment during the ceremony. That's in verses 12 and 13 here. So they brought the musical instruments and in unison, the musicians and the singers were to make themselves heard with one voice to praise and give thanks to Yahweh. And they lifted up their voices accompanied by trumpets and cymbals and instruments of music. Notice that this was not a 
cacophony of praise, everyone doing their own thing with no organization, just blast whatever instrumentation you want, total disheveled, disorganized mess. It wasn't any of that. Uh, no metrical precision in their song, that sort of thing. It wasn't everybody grab a trumpet and play a chord, whatever you come up with is fine. And then it becomes just nonsense. No, they did it all in unison. There was unity of mind in their music. Now, the Bible says that they made themselves heard with one voice. And you can note that in verse 13. They, they, they were to make themselves heard with one voice. There was a clearly unified singularity of music and singing. So that's why when you go into church, uh, it's, it's helpful to all sing in unison and not, well, why don't you guys sing on this side, sing Amazing Grace, and you guys over here, you know, sing Baby Shark. Why wouldn't you do that? Well, you're not unified in your voice. It becomes silly, and it becomes disorganized, the very thing Paul warns us against in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 40. There's supposed to be orderliness in the church of God's people. But the question here is, what was their unified message? And we see it in verse 13. The unified message was the goodness and forever long loving kindness of Yahweh. What were they praising God about? The goodness of God. Their praise was directed towards God in unity. They were there to worship God. They were there to extol his name. They were not there to feel good about themselves. And why do we know this? Well, because the cloud of Yahweh's presence filled this newly constructed temple and they could not stand to minister, the text says here in verse 14. They couldn't stand to minister because the presence of God was so palpable. So they were overcome by the glory of God, which is what is supposed to happen when we worship God. We're supposed to be overcome by his goodness and his glory, his loving kindness, his faithfulness. And, and that, that can be very, very difficult to do if you've had a rough week, if you have stressful things going on in your life, you're dealing with health concerns, whatever. When you gather with God's people to worship, and if, you, if you're not captured by the glory of God five minutes before we start, it's very difficult for you to navigate and, and sing. Because inevitably what happens is you start muttering through songs, right? You know, in Christ alone. You know, you're just muttering through it. Your heart's not in it. That's not worshiping in spirit and truth. There's truth there, but you're missing the spirit, the heart set aflame by God's glory. So we need to be, we are not to be overcome by whatever emotions we conjure up. Um, that's, that's, the, that's the difficulty here. We're to be overcome by the glory of God. And that's why the musical manipulation that goes on in churches today is such a, an atrocious thing because you start to quite literally manipulate people into whatever outcome you want them to have. Now, curiously enough, we read this later in 2 Chronicles 29, verse 30. Moreover, King Hezekiah and the officials ordered the Levites to sing praises to Yahweh with the words of David and Asaph, the seer. So they sang praises with gladness and bowed down and worshiped. Now, David and Asaph, they were contributors to the book of Psalms. In the book of Psalms, you have 150 Psalms, five different books and sections. David is the most prolific. Asaph is second. You have a lot that are, we just don't know. They're unknown. We don't know who wrote them. 
Um, you have songs of Moses that were you know, brought down through the ages, and you have other writers. But David and Asaph are mentioned here in 2 Chronicles 29. And the book of Psalms essentially becomes the songbook of the covenant people. David had written them. Asaph was here. Uh, the, this was the songbook. It was the hymn book of ancient Israel. And it became that way very quickly, as no doubt David would compose songs during his monarchical reign and people would sing them. And so music served as an aesthetically pleasing aspect of biblical worship, as it should be. Now, you might remember I mentioned this back when we were in our Genesis series, but remember the first thing that Adam cries out when he sees Eve, and he basically sings her a song of poetry. This is, you know, flesh of my flesh, bone of my bones. And so it was kind of a moment of poetry and art very early on, even in, in the garden story. Now, you can flip to Colossians 3. After the Gospels, after Romans and Corinthians, you get Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with gratefulness in your hearts to God. So Paul urges the Colossian church to see to it that the word of Christ, the word of Christ is a singularity here, it's the gospel, make sure the gospel message dwells in us richly, profoundly, deeply. The gospel is supposed to go to the heart. It's supposed to go all the way down. And there are two ways in which the gospel message of Christ can dwell in you. He says it here. First, it can dwell through teaching and admonishment soaked with wisdom. Uh, it's refreshing to be able to converse with people. And if you are conversing with them and they present a problem to you, and immediately you think of a Bible verse, or immediately you think of a situation where a Bible verse applied, and, and you begin to converse on that level, well, that's the Word of God dwelling in you richly. If you never get around to talking about the Bible, and you, there's not really a whole lot of dwelling richly stuff happening there. It's just talking. But if we, in, in not just our preaching and teaching, but in our conversing and, and your day-to-day -day with your families at home, if you're admonishing and teaching one another and pointing each other back to the gospel, pointing us back to the Word of God, well, that's how the Word of God dwells in us. And so all members of a church share some level of responsibility here. And teaching is a priority, as we'll see next week, in the assembly of God's people. So we must all conform to God's standard, which means we need to know what the standard is. And when we're falling short, we need to help each other to get there with patience and exhortation and admonishment. Secondly, the second way that the gospel of Christ can dwell within you, the word of Christ can dwell in us through the vehicle of music. That's what Paul speaks of here, the vehicle of music. Music has always been a universal language. Music is a gift from God. Uh, it has the capability of drawing out. It has the capability of tying together. And it also can invoke certain visceral reactions. All of us have heard a song and you are, can immediately go back to the place somewhere. 
For me, it's when I listen to country music, I hear, I can see my, I can see myself as a kid traveling down to Tennessee to visit my aunts and uncles and grandparents. And it's just a memory is invoked when you hear a song and you just think of where was I when I heard that song for the first time or, or what, what was the context. And that's, that's what music does. It really not only affects your brain, but it affects your heart. Now in this passage, Paul uses three different nouns to describe the music that God has commanded for his church. First, he says psalms. He mentions psalms here, which may or may not include instrumentation, but it's mostly reference to the Old Testament book of psalms, which makes a lot of sense in the context. So we should be able to sing the songs of Israel, the songs of Jesus. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, Beaky's book is really helpful in, in, in making those connections for us. But that's the first group, the psalms themselves. The second are hymns. And hymns can be simply songs of praise, and they can include psalms, um, but not necessarily exclusively. You may have hymns and songs that developed out of the Psalter, out of the book of Psalms, um, but in the New Testament context, they could, they could include early creedal formulations, they could be chants, they could be melodies uh, associated with, with Christological terms. Here's Jesus, here's who he is. I'll give you one example in Colossians 2. If you look over in your page, verses 15 all the way to verse 20, that is probably an early creedal hymn, a song of praise that was developed for the early church. And there are lots of other ones. There's some in Philippians. There's places in other, in other spaces there in the New Testament. So we have psalms and hymns, and we also have spiritual songs. And those could be compositional songs that people draft up, and it aids in teaching and exhortation. Um, they're not frivolities and worthless trifles. That's what Calvin says. These are, these are spiritual songs developed based on the truth of God's word. Furthermore, in context, so th those are the three things. Paul says in verse 16 that singing is to be expressed in the context of gratitude. So no matter if you're singing psalms, hymns, or spiritual songs, you are to do it in the context of gratitude. And that word is, is charis in the, in the New Testament. It's the word grace. There's supposed to be grace in your heart, in, in your singing. And if you don't have grace in your heart to sing to God, are you truly worshiping him? And are you truly giving what's due his name? Because none of us come in here and we're capable of giving what God deserves, correct? We don't have that. We can't give him everything that he deserves, but we need to give him something. And what do we need to give him? Grateful hearts. So when we sing in grace, we sing with the empowerment of God's grace, which has been given to us. And that's why if you're just muttering through songs when we're singing together, and you're just, you know, you're not into it for whatever reason, I get it. We, we, we all have issues, right? <laughs> you're just muttering through. You're not singing with grace and gratitude in your heart. You're singing in your own strength. Uh, and, and you may be tempted to think, well, I'm not a great singer. My tone isn't great. Um, I've seen those guys in American Idol. They get laughed off the stage. That would be me. Like, if you're thinking that's you, well, that's okay. Practice, practice, practice. But also know that nobody's going to say anything 
if you're just so far off key. You can, we can develop that. <laughs> we can work on that. Uh, but the point isn't that. The point is, even if you don't think you're a great singer, if you have grace in your heart, you're just singing. And I, I, I get those moments. I have to be careful because I'll just bust out in song at the house sometimes, and then I get chastised for it. <laughs> hey, don't be doing that. <laughs> now, how, how shall we then live? I want to give you a few working definitions and, and some contours regarding how we view music here at Cross and Crown. And we actually developed a document that I was going to give out, but I wanted to fix some things before I give it out. So I'll, I'll, I'll do that. But these are just some things that we've been thinking through. What is our theology and philosophy of music here? Well, we believe that music with instrumentation should the opportunity arise. But, you know, if you're uh, Christians in China and in Western China provinces where you're in a cave to worship and you don't have instrumentations, you know, instrumentation, guitars, piano, organ, whatever, that's okay. <laughs> it's not like, you know, you can't sing. But for us, we believe that music is here in our fellowship for the express purpose of exalting God and edifying God's people. So teaching us to better know, love, and obey King Jesus. We want music to be an opportunity for us to sing loudly, to glorify God, because his word commands us to. But we also want it to be edifying. So we won't be doing Highway to Hell at any time here. Which is like, why would you pick that song? For your Easter service, I have questions. Well, mostly statements to make to them, but not questions. <laughs> but that's the, that's the goal. Exalt God, edify God's people. And there are parameters in place, we'll get to, to, to do that. But that's the point of music in the assembly of God. That's the real reason we sing. We don't sing, and this is for kids for you to know too, we don't sing just because we feel like doing that. We sing because God demands us to sing his praises because he is worthy. So exalting God first and then edifying and teaching us. Now, if the song choice does not accomplish the first part of exalting God, then it cannot accomplish the second. If it doesn't exalt God, it's not going to edify you. Or it might placate to your personal, emotional, whatever you want in the moment. But that's not edifying. That's just selfishness. So if, if it exalts man, then it has failed the test. And much of contemporary Christian music today does that. It exalts man. It speaks of man as the center. And it doesn't mean, because even David cries out, and you read in the Psalms, sometimes it does pertain to us. Sometimes we can sing about our condition. You know, speaking to yourself, Psalm 42, why are you downcast, O my soul? Hope in God. So sometimes we do need it, but that doesn't mean it's man-centered. That just anchors us to God and his glory. Now, just because you might like a song does not mean that it exalts God. There are priorities in place for a reason. So we want to adore, magnify, exalt, and honor the Lord in our congregational singing. And this is because worship is obedient service. Worship is obedient service. And we are here in this service to serve the Lord, to minister to the Lord, to be shaped, shaped by the Lord. Now that said, I, I do have five principles for us to consider, and this will help us as we move forward into the future with congregational singing, and especially as we introduce more psalm singing into, into our church. 
The first one, God is to be worshipped according to his word. Very simple. God is to be worshipped according to his word. God is to be worshipped according to his word. God alone demonstrates what is acceptable. So our music must be regulated by the word of God. We believe and we are committed to sola scriptura. Scripture alone is our authority for all of life. We appeal to the Bible in order to develop a philosophy of music, especially congregational singing. And we would say here that we hold to an informed principle of worship, informed principle of worship, meaning that our worship and particularly our theology and philosophy of music and singing, it must be informed by the Bible. First and foremost, that's where we go. We, it must be informed by Scripture. So what does God's Word tell us about some aspects of our music? Well, first, our worship and singing must be biblical and not unbiblical. It would do us no good to sing a song that goes against the doctrine of justification by faith alone. It would do us no good to sing a song that assumes that God is not triune. We're, uh, what we sing has to be biblical. It has to be filtered through Scripture. It must be shaped by the truth we find in the scriptures. Theological accuracy in lyrics is important, lest people get the wrong ideas about the nature of God, the nature of the world, and the nature of man. Next, our worship must be Catholic. And what I mean is universal. Universal. I don't mean Roman Catholic, just Catholic in the strictest sense, the universality. We are a local expression of the visible worldwide church, which, which means we ought to have some knowledge of this in our singing. And another way, of, another way of speaking about this might be better understood as global. We need to understand the global nature of the church. Um, another thing, our worship must be balanced. Must be balanced. There, there must be depth and breadth. We need to avoid shallow shallow music that's just pious goop. <laughs> we need to avoid the narrow where we only do this. I mean, imagine if we only saw, would come together and sing Christmas songs every Sunday. I mean, I would be cool with that for a few weeks, but, <laughs> but we wouldn't necessarily want to do it that way. So there needs to be, it shouldn't be narrow. Um, proportionality needs to be informed by the Bible, essentially. And, and we don't want to fall into the trap of singing the exact same thing over and over again ad nauseum, right? We want to sing songs about creation, the beauty and splendor of creation, about God's grace. We want to sing songs about the, the forgiveness of sins, the victory of the gospel. We want to sing about a whole host of things because the Bible tells us about a whole host of things. And we don't want to only sing about one aspect of God's multi-perspectival character. We sing about his holiness and his love and his mercy, his grace, his kindness, his justice, his wrath. We sing about all of those things and not just one of them. The Bible tells us that worship must be holy and reverent. We're not here for a dance party. We're here to honor God, which means the demeanor of our hearts and the posture of our bodies does matter. We're not sitting here drinking beers and, and singing our favorite radio songs. We don't do that in the worship of God's people. Look, I love Brooks and Dunn, greatest country music in the world. 
But it's something I listen to on the way to the rodeo. It's not for church. Worship must be holy. It must be reverent. Worship must also be creedal and doctrinal. It must be in line with the truth of the Bible, and thus it serves to instruct us. So it needs to be doctrinal. What else do we find when we go to the Bible? Well, worship must be pastoral or edifying. It needs to be historical, meaning it should speak to the heart. It should give wisdom to the heart, and it should be in touch with the work of redemption throughout the ages. I love what one writer said it this way. History is made up of happy major chords and sad minor chords. It is a story of joy and sorrow. Therefore, our music must reflect not just exuberance, but also the depth and the deep anguish of scriptures. Biblical church music should be reverential, joyful, exuberant, shout-worthy, mournful, lamentable, and warlike. Music dresses us in priestly garments, Ephesians 6. So we are to sing songs back to God. And how can we improve upon God's own work? We cannot. So, second thing, music teaches. Music teaches. God is to be worshipped according to his word. That's number one. Number two, music teaches. Singing is the melodic verbalization of the heart. When we sing, we are verbalizing what is going on in our hearts. And we do it with joy, grace, and the power of the Spirit. When we do this together in this way, we find that we are learning something. Our worship should support the preaching and teaching of the Bible, which also means that we should be ready to learn from what we sing. How many of you learned your alphabet by singing the ABC song? Okay, everybody. A, B, C, D, right, kids? It's amazing how music can be used to teach and instruct. Not only do the lyrics themselves teach us, the melody does as well because it helps us remember so that we can en enjoy it. You, in that, that hymn, In Christ Alone, what's the crescendo to that? There on the ground his body lay, light of the world and by darkness slain, and then it builds. The melody of the song builds. Then bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave he rose again. I get chills when I sing that. That is a powerful illustration of the words tying to the melody of the song to, to, to bring out what's in the heart. And as he stands in victory, sin's curse has lost its grip on me, for I am his and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. Music teaches us. It teaches us. And it should teach us about the beauty of God, the truth of God, the expectations of God. And congregational singing must be in line with the Bible so we can learn more about the Bible. Number three, music draws out the heart. Not only does music teach us, it's, it draws out the heart. Music draws out what is inside. When the Bible calls us to sing praises to Yahweh, to exalt his name, to lift up our hearts unto the Lord. The Bible assumes that we are doing it from the heart. Modern music tries to impose an emotional response upon us, but that's exactly the opposite of what we're supposed to do. Rather, grace and joy and gladness of heart is the foundation for music and singing. 
We're supposed to give God what is already there, not manipulate people into trying to come up with something so that they can then give it to God. No, it draws out what is already there. We're to sing from the right motives. And again, too often today, churches try to artificially draw up some sort of emotion from the outside when in fact it's supposed to just come from the center of who we are. That's how you worship in spirit and truth. Let me say it in a, this way. In other words, we sing with emotions already present due to the heart's adoration of God. We do not sing in order to acquire these emotions. That's the difference. And we want to, we want to form hearts of repentance so that we can, so we can delight in the law of God. We want to form in our singing hearts of faith so that we can believe on the sovereignty of God. We want to form hearts of thankfulness so that we can respond appropriately to the work of God in our lives. And we want to form hearts of praise so that we can go back to God with joy and peace in the Holy Spirit. And that is the book of Psalms. You read the Psalms and David, you know, one point, like, God, you were so far away from me. And he pours out his heart and then he comes back. You're right here. <laughs> and that, that expression of emotion is important. And that's why we, in, we, essentially, we've been doing this for years, but in our worship, we do our responsive reading from the Psalms so that we can dialogue back and forth on the Psalms, and, and hopefully that produces in us some expectation of God. Number four, music must suit the occasion. Music must suit the occasion. As God-pleasers and not man-pleasers, we desire to sing songs that suit the nature of what it is we are doing. This is not a pep rally with a DJ hyping up the crowd, mixing up songs and everybody's you know, throwing their fists in the air and jumping up and down. That's not what we're doing. This is not a sporting event. Because you, you, this been observed that People, you go to a sporting event, and uh, you can get really into it. You can paint your chest. You can color your hair, and you can sing loud, loud, loud. And you can really pour yourself out over, yay, sport team, right? But what happens when we worship God? You don't need to come in here with your face painted, by the way. You come in, you come in though, and you, you sing and exalt him and you praise him. So it's not a sporting event. The, this is the ecclesia of God gathered to sing praises to God. And just because you heard the song on the radio doesn't mean it's something that should be sung in church. And reverence and godly fear, this is Hebrews 12. Reverence and godly fear rules out certain genres of music in church. Rock and roll, pop, hip-hop, uh, screamo, definitely should not be done in church, techno-punk genres, just by the fact of what we are doing here rules out much of that because it's either chaotic or it's hard to follow. You can't sing. He's screaming into the microphone. What exactly is he even saying? You know, if you want to pump yourself up on your way to work, by all means. But here, it's reverence and godly fear. But why? Well, because... Why is that stuff not okay? Because it's not suited for the occasion. Church music is distinct because the occasion is distinct. 
It's not self-preferential because we do not gather for selfish reasons. Music in the church is music that serves God, and thus we need to act like it. Number five, music is not subjective or relative. This will be by far the most controversial point. Music is not subjective or relative. That's immediately what I can hear having this conversation with a megachurch pastor. Yeah, but you just like your way. We like our way. And music is relative. And, and just because you don't like it, yada, yada, and you get into this argument. No, no, no. Music is not subjective. It's objective. It's the same thing with postmodern art. There is an object to, objectivity to it. If, if you just threw you know, together some statue and we don't know what in the world you're talking about, it's not able to be interpreted. So that's bad art because art is meant to be beautiful and God glorifying and something that we can interpret and, and see visually with our eyes from the biblical worldview. Same thing with music. It's not subjective. And this is another way of saying that music is, is objective in the sense that what is created in music can be objectively bad or good, and it depends on what we're considering. Music is to be objectively true, objectively beautiful, objectively precise, objectively accurate, objectively complex. You know, simply banging out four chords on a guitar doesn't necessarily meet aesthetic standards in music okay i'll give you an example i know a little bit of guitar i know g c d those three chords that'll allow you to play 95 percent of christian music g c d on the guitar 95 percent of christian music now that's not something we should glory in i mean we've had you think of Bach's contribution to music and the history of music you know, contemporary Christians are like, look, we'll sing GCD, and if you play it backwards, DCG, we'll have a whole other song. It's not complex. It's very simple. And some might say, well, it should be simple so people can play it. Not necessarily. The Bible doesn't say, let's go to the lowest common denominator here. The Bible, we have example after example, and especially in the construction of the temple and the tabernacle, of godly men who were skillful craftsmen who were brought together to, to build this thing, okay? I can't be trusted with building a house. I should not be trusted, but I have some family members who should be, not me. So we, we, we want skill in, in all of this. We don't want to just, you know, do it because we can do it. Paul says in Ephesians 5.19, to make melody with your heart to the Lord. So not chaos, not confusion, um, not ugliness, not vain simplicity, not any of that should be present in our music. No, there, there's a melody in your heart that should come out, and the music, music we sing should be conducive to said melody. So music is not preferential. It's rendered to us by God. God tells us what is orderly and what is beautiful. And when we sing in accordance with God's standards, we become what God has made us to be in Christ. So when we approach God... We must do so with hearts prepared to worship. That's Amos chapter 5. The music should be skillful. Psalm 33.3 requires, Sing unto him a new song. Play skillfully with a loud shout. Just because you know a few chords doesn't mean you're qualified to lead God's people 
and worship. And what we do in music ought to be as professionally rehearsed as possible. First Chronicles 15.22 Now this requires practice. It requires mastery. And when considering music in the church, we also need to keep in mind things like tempo. It's not a punk rock song. We're just trying to keep up with the lyrics, right? We need to consider tempo. We need to consider the tune, pitch. We need to consider the skill of the congregation. There's a lot to be considered there. And we're supposed to sing with unified sound. And if no one knows the melody, it can be very, very challenging to do that, which is why we need to practice. And my hope, just kind of as a personal reflection here, my hope in the near future is that we can gather in, in, in other contexts and we can start learning to sing the Psalms better and practice them and rehearse them. And that way you're not just you know, showing up on a Sunday and not even knowing at all what's going on. We also need to keep in mind that our singing must be loud. Psalm 33, 3. God wants you to sing loudly. He wants it to be joyful, Psalm 511. It needs to be exuberant or heartfelt. It needs to be beautiful. Screaming into the microphone while the guitarist thrashes and drop D doesn't fit the beauty of congregational worship. But chanting psalms and recalling to mind the victory of Christ's resurrection does. Ultimately, what we want is God-pleasing worship and singing. That's what we want, not man-pleasing worship and singing. People, people go, they go church shopping in order to browse what sort of preferences that they can ch- check off their lists. Is the, mu- is the music a certain way? All right, then that fits me, and that's what I'm going to do. But we don't gather for us. <laughs> we don't gather for us. We gather for the living God, and this means we must rehearse. We must practice. We must especially practice the liturgy. We must be shaped by this liturgy because liturgy is a way of life. It's a manner of living. It's a way to teach ourselves and to teach the world how to follow Christ in obedience. I want to close here with a C.S. Lewis quote. C.S. Lewis says it this way about church. He says, Every service is a structure of acts and words through which we receive a sacrament or repent or supplicate or adore. And it enables us to do these things best, if you like, it works best, when, through long familiarity, we don't have to think about it. As long as you notice and have to count the steps, you are not yet dancing, but only learning to dance. A good shoe is a shoe you don't notice. Good reading becomes possible when you need not consciously think about eyes or light or print or spelling. The perfect church service would be one we were almost unaware of. Our attention would have been on God. What a great quote. The end of the matter is this, love Christ with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And when we gather to sing together, that love must spill out. Your heart must be so enlarged by the Holy Spirit in the practice of spiritual disciplines that Sunday singing becomes a massive pressure release valve. You can't help but sing aloud with joy and grace in your hearts. 
Having spent the entire week in the Word, in prayer, and constant communion with the triune God, you come prepared to explode with exuberance and buoyancy. The war for the hearts of man starts with us. So come to Jesus, sing to Jesus, adore this Jesus, for salvation is of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we glorify you in this service. We ask that you would take our half-heartedness, our double-mindedness, Take our distractions and do away with them. Help us to be utterly consumed by your glory and not be so consumed by what it is we have going on. Help us to cultivate this joy in our hearts so that we might honor you with the worship that is due your name. Give us grace, God, in our music and help us to focus our attention on you. For you are good and great and glorious. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.